It's time for Midweek Meter Watch, and we're joined by Colin Peacock, and he's in our Wellington studio. We've got a, got a bit to get through tonight, including election coverage and the problem posed by politically motivated hecklers at campaign events, as witnessed uh, with Mr Luxon, I think it was yesterday or the day before. But first, Colin, welcome to the programme. You want to talk about the saga sparked by the behaviour of the Spanish football chief. I do, and I'm sure there are people who are not particularly interested in the football, but I think even those people uh, will probably know a fair bit about the story by now because it's been in the news for a good week now. So yeah, the story is huge pressure on the boss of the Spanish Football Federation, the national body, uh, to sack the president, uh, Luis Rubiales, or at least for him to quit. Uh, He made at the final a rather kind of crude macho gesture in the VIP area uh, that was made worse by the fact he was standing right next to uh, Spain's queen and her teenage daughter. This was on the final whistle when uh, Spain's women's team had finally won the whole tournament. And then he, uh, on the victory podium afterwards where the presentations were being made, he kissed veteran player Jenny Hermoso, you know, kind of grabbing her by the head and yes. quite aggressively kissing her. And that's what a lot of people are focused on. But when I was watching this, I didn't see that part of it. But I did see, as the players went down the line and all shook hands, several of them, he hugged them very aggressively, mm. lifting some of them off their feet. And it mm. all looked a bit weird. Um, <laughs> I must say, I, I have a bit of a sort of personal um, attachment to this too in a wee way. I went to three games here in Wellington and two of them, just coincidentally featured the the Spanish side, and they, I think they were staying in the hotel right next to us here at RNZ Towers, in Wellington, because there's an elevator through the hotel that takes you down to, to Lambton Quay, down to the the CBD, and a couple yeah. of times I bumped into the squad all in their tracksuits, and after, one night after the quarterfinal, I think, where they beat the Netherlands and were waiting for a lift, so I congratulated them because it seemed rude not to, and they were very mm. modest and saying thank you, but in their limited English and so on, so yeah, I really felt sorry for what's developed since then. So in the end, the entire coaching staff have quit because of Ruby Alas trying to tough this out and yeah. and not uh, acknowledge or, or apologise for his behaviour. The World Body FIFA suspended him for three months. The Federation's regional chiefs in Spain want him to go, but he seems determined to stick it out and kind of made it worse by uh, telling a, a kind of Federation Congress meeting he was the victim of fake feminism. So absolute PR disaster. And I checked in uh, to see, I think it was actually on Friday last week, to see how this was going down in Spain's main national daily El País and the first five pages of the sports section all devoted to this and he was on the front page a kind of grainy long lens shot of him looking grumpy um, behind a tinted glass car windscreen and below that was a much smaller story the day that it was the day that Trump's mugshot came out so I think when you're three times the size of Trump's mugshot on the front page of the National Daily you've got problems you've done something mm. you've done something I mean it was so aggressive wasn't it? the way he grabbed her head um, mm. that was just bizarre and then to turn around and say I will not resign I will not resign but anyway the National Federation he represents well, they backed him didn't they at first and his mum did too, which you probably expect. <laughs> yeah, well, well, maybe. Um, so the Spanish FA was a bit weird. At first they started trying to look for video evidence and stills and things shot from other angles in the stadium as if to prove his version of events, that he wasn't quite 
had quite done what he said he did. I mean, other people responded with other footage from other angles, which makes it seem as bad, if not worse, than Jenny Hermoso had said. So, I mean, difficult. But yeah, then Rubiales' own mother, uh, last couple of days, reportedly locking herself in a church and threatening to go on hunger strike for what um, has been reported as a hunt of her son and also a witch hunt of her son, which, if accurate, is, um, you know, given the feminist context of this, is probably not helping that choice of words. But um, not really wanting to make light of this, but um, the Irish podcast Second Captains uh, pondered this development and they reckon that uh, Rubiales, by digging in and not giving uh, relinquishing his job, is actually the stance of his mum has given him a pretty interesting dilemma. Is he going to let his mother starve? You know, that's the question now. Because this guy, there's, he, he likes the job and he wants to keep the job. But is he prepared to let his mother waste away on hunger strike? I have a feeling, I feel, I know we're obviously very different types of guys, but if it was me in this position, I would probably, certainly I would try to talk my mother out of this. And if she was insisting that she was going to do it, I actually might step down from the job. Tell me again how much my wage is. 675 grand plus point, apparently 0.15% revenue share of the, the association. Which how is, old which is, is my mom again? <laughs> <laughs> You've had a good innings. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it's pretty black humour. They're, they're having fun with it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is a pretty serious situation, of course, and, and there were already problems with this team and the management. Um, I mean, many of the squad had uh, refused written that letter, hadn't they? And they refused to play for the uh, management team at the World Cup here in New Zealand. Yeah, I remember Zoe George of, of Stuff, who uh, talked about that when she came on your program you know, before the tournament kicked off and mentioned this, and of course it got mentioned as they progressed through the tournament. But that made the conduct of Rubiales all that all that more unaware, if I could put it like that, mm. given that it was clear that there was antipathy between the authorities and the players. But um, what I didn't realise is that before the current coach, Vilda, who's he's been in charge since 2015, they had the same coach from 2015 all the way back to 1988, uh, a guy called Ignacio Carrada. And the players had complained about him too down all those years. They, in fact, they got rid of him after another player's revolt in 2015. And I had a look at a documentary that aired about this. Um, it's called Breaking the Silence. It's in Spanish, but with English subtitles, it's on uh, YouTube. Um, it was screened on sort of Spain's equivalent of Sky Sports uh, two years ago, I think. And there is some alarming footage in that, which I've also seen elsewhere, of this guy, Kerada, and while matches are going on and training sessions as well, but cameras there in plain sight, he's whacking the players, twisting their ears. It's quite weird. You know, that gesture that I think, I think grandparents often do, I think maybe it's an Italian or Spanish thing, of slightly pinching the cheeks of a mm. grandchild. And, you know, like, He's doing that, but really squeezing, hurting, pinching the cheek, and they're recoiling in pain. It's mm-hmm. quite, quite weird. So something very wrong in Spanish football, isn't it? And it's all now playing out, of course, in the world's media. Um, they've had this huge success, but it's been completely overshadowed by this controversy. Uh, it, it's a story, isn't it, about sporting culture going wrong, really? Mm-hmm. Or is it perhaps more even than that, um, a, a Spanish social problem? Yeah, possibly. And I was wondering, you know, are we talking about the wrong thing given this is a media slot? But I think that the media attention on it is actually what makes the difference because, you know, the success of this tournament co-hosted here, so I guess New Zealand can take a bit of credit for this, has been such that 
there were an awful lot of eyes on what happened there at, at the final and this particular incident and then the reporting of the context of it. So if we went 10 years ago or 12, some two, three World Cups back, there wouldn't have been that level of audience. If this thing had happened, it would have been a bit of a footnote maybe, mm. um, a kind of out of sight, out of mind sort of a thing, albeit that as we know from say that documentary I just mentioned about the previous coach, there were players going completely vocal and boycotting the team for the same sorts of reasons, but it didn't catch on. But this time it has. And again, Zoe, when she talked to you, Zoe George, about this, she mentioned things like um, other squads who'd had problems with getting a fair deal or fair treatment out of you know their federations at Nigeria, Haiti, Canada, for example, in the States, uh, I think won two World Cups while they were in dispute with their authorities. So interesting. And also um, the Spanish media have had a, a look at themselves over this. They have a, a daily paper, I think, devoted to sports or possibly even just to football called Marca. Um, and they immediately, when the images came out of that Rubiales kiss, uh, compared it to 2010, uh, the World Cup when Spain won. Uh, New Zealand qualified for that one too. It was held in South Africa. When Spain won, the Spanish captain, Ica Casillas, grabbed uh, a, a journalist, Sarah Cabanaro, TV presenter, when she was presenting live by the neck and gave her this huge kiss. And But they were partners. They later got married, so they were in a relationship. And Marca, the paper, said, oh, look at this with Rubiales and Jenny Hermoso. It's like 2010. It's like Ike and Sarah again. You know, but like the, Rubiales is their employer, you know, and they're not partners as Ike Casillas and Sarah Carbonero. So pretty weird. And incidentally, um, Ike Casillas, the goalie captain back then, has said, yeah, he thought back to this moment. He said he really regrets it. He said, look, um, it was impulsive what I did with Sarah there, uh, but we'd been living in a big brother type bubble for six weeks in this tournament, and now I'm really ashamed to see what I did, and mm. and I regret it. So interesting. Yeah. Mm. Well, last time we spoke on uh, Midweek Media Watch, we mentioned that Spain had pushed back for for calling Palmerston North boring. Remember that? Uh, <laughs> after doing some training there, and I mean, I guess Palmy people might have mixed feelings about all of this. <laughs> yeah, it turned out to be the lesser of the scandal involving <laughs> uh, the Spain contingent. Let's say, but on that, all credit to Palmerston North. Council uh, on social media after the Spain won the tournament. They posted this message, uh, congratulations La Roya, uh, world champions. Uh, what an incredible match. All that training in Palmy at the Fab Massey University facilities must have done the trick, eh? Anyway, adios, goodbye, safe travels home. So classy there from Palmerston North, where my partner is indeed from, so classy like Palmerston North is, of course, a classy joint. Wonderful place. Yeah. Yeah. The World Cup, uh, just ask John Cleese. Um, the World Cup was uh, was good for Wellington, uh, but last week Hayden told me about an editorial in the Sunday Star Times that claimed Wellington had a hole in its heart, and you have some follow-up on that. Yes, it was it was fun listening to Hayden going through that. He was an Aucklander, I'm a Wellingtonian, so he didn't perhaps feel it quite like I did, but the uh, Sunday Star Times editor... Uh, Tracy Watkins and her editorial was be the weekend before last mm. reflected on the closure of that sandwich chop, uh, shop chain Wishbone, which was in the news. She wasn't the only one who saw this as a kind of symptom of Wellington's problems and the wider kind of economy um, with closing shops and decreased spending. She said um, work from home culture, mm. uh, particularly with civil servants, is kind of killing the CBD, loss of car parks as well. Pretty bleak vision. 
Um, now, she's also, uh, as of about a month ago, also the editor of Wellington's Daily The Post. So really interesting then in the light of what Hayden was talking about and that particular editorial that the front page lead story in the weekend edition of The Post, The Weekend Just Gone, uh, was by longtime uh, Wellington reporter Tom Hunt. They painted a pretty different picture of uh, what's going on in the capital. Yeah. Yeah, so what was his take? Well, he was saying, OK, no secret that we've been hit hard by COVID-19 um, problems in the city, water pipes rupturing when they're not meant to, uh, sometimes quite spectacularly, the Golden Mile losing its shine, shops shutting and so on. But he says, look, this is turning around. Uh, cruise ships are coming back in huge numbers, back to pre-COVID levels. Um, COVID restrictions are over, of course. He says um, even the old Kirkcaldian Staines department store possibly won't mean much to people who don't know Wellington all the well, but that's opening up again. There is a new um, something that um, in bemoaning the closure of one chain of sandwich shops, uh, Tracy Watkins hadn't mentioned a big food court and subterranean entertainment complex that um, I was actually at just a couple of hours ago by coincidence, <laughs> uh, meeting my kids there and giving them a treat dinner. Um, that's opened um, and was pretty lively um, with people playing at the fun fair and eating ice cream and all sorts. So yeah, it was it was really buzzing. The, the cable cars back, as Hayden pointed out, public transport patronage is back to, I think, pre-COVID levels. So, you know, there's all sorts of things going on that, that were in this article. I think quite pointed that this was placed on the front page uh, of the Dominion Post, which very much contradicted what the editor of the paper itself had said in the other title, the Sunday Star Times, just seven days earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, something that was hard to spin was, of course, the All Blacks' performance against South Africa at the weekend. <laughs> yeah, uh, indeed. And I have to say, I've kind of taken a bit advantage of this a bit in Media mm-hmm. Watch when there have been other uh, sort of uh, first ever notable landmark defeats for the All Blacks when they've lost to Ireland and Argentina for the first time ever just in, in recent years. And the reaction's been so um, colourful, let's say, but uh, over the top in some quarters, it's it's kind of fun to package it up and put it in the programme. And this time I was a bit surprised. I watched part of the game because I was up early on. Uh, Saturday morning it was, wasn't it? But mm. maybe it was the time of day that, you know, early morning it's hard to be that uptight. I don't know. But I thought the reaction was much, much more mild. I listened to one of the sporting talkback and possibly just because it was a warm-up game in a tournament and, you know, phony war period or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, and it was a lot of a kind of a perfect storm of things going wrong, which possibly you wouldn't expect to repeat again in a hurry. But what I thought was interesting in the Sky Sports Studio, the panel was Jeff Wilson, uh, Laura McGoldrick and Carl Tanana, who I still think of as a seven star, but now he's pretty uh, adept uh, media panelist and pundit. And Carl was actually like actually laughing about it. And I thought maybe the tone of it all had this sort of... um, you know, what, what does it the parents say? You know, I'm, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed, uh, yes. you know, when they're, they're trying not to overreact to things. But on morning report, Corinne Dan on Monday, so some 48 hours after, uh, spoke to Jamie Wall about it. And Jamie also uh, sort of brought up parents' reaction in a way when he described it to Corinne this way. I've come up with an analogy to uh, describe it to you. It was being there at Twickenham. Was, it was kind of like watching your dad getting beaten up. <laughs> it, was, it was that bad. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm, re- yeah. I'm really hoping Jamie hasn't actually had to witness, witness his dad getting beaten up. I hope he's just using his imagination there. But what, one other thing that was interesting about that, that first half took something like 62 yes. minutes to play out instead of the regulation 40. And that's happening in football now too. Um, in the English Premier League, which is starting, they're stopping players from time-wasting, mm. adding on. So games are now getting 10 and 20 minutes longer. And that's changing things for the media because... Um, the broadcasts are getting longer, pundits are working harder and commentators, and uh, yeah, it's changing the game. So mm. interesting little media aspect, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see that in the upcoming uh, World Cup in, in France as well. So 80-minute matches probably going, what, 100 minutes or more? Well, I thought I, I think I read that it was 120. I think it was two hours uh, go to woe with that uh, All Black match with all the stoppages and you know the video refs and VARs all that sort of stuff you know yeah um, that's a that's a heck of a long time isn't it? and it becomes a bit of a trod fest doesn't it well know? it does I suppose it gives the players a bit of a rest between well, between plays but if for, mm. for fans in the stadium it's wretched and for viewers not that yeah. great although you know there are refreshment opportunities I guess that you wouldn't get (laughs) (laughs) but you're still taking a chance out if you nip out uh, while they're uh, consulting the video ref or whatever. Now another thing we spoke about a couple of weeks ago was how the media was zeroing in on upcoming uh, election even though it was still some time away of course it's a bit closer now and uh, it's you know it is picking up steam no question. Yeah I might have to shelve my kind of broken record on you know that the media are too soon, too keen, too early, <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's on now for sure. And one thing that makes it feel a bit closer, I guess, um, Tuesday, TBNZ announced uh, the details of its uh, pre-election and election night and post-election coverage, indeed. And, you know, they possibly, I think, get the biggest audience and put the biggest effort in on the night. So yeah, that, that makes it feel like it's around the corner. So what, it, what do they have in store for us? Well, the, what they've announced is actually pretty similar, I think, to the last couple of elections. So they'll have the first leaders debate between the National and Labour Party leaders. That's on the 19th of September at 7pm. That'll be on TV1. Uh, Jessica Much Mackay, the political editor at TVNZ, will moderate that one. Then on the 5th of October, so it's, what, 10 days out, uh, a little less from the election day itself, they'll have the uh, multi-party leaders debate, uh, Jack Tame, will be the host of that one. Um, interestingly, they say the uh, the actual um, lineup of that will remain open until the last week due to the timing of TVNZ's polls. So I guess mm-hmm. they're only going to admit, it's always controversial, isn't it, yes. which ones get on, which ones don't. So I guess they're going to set some sort of benchmark of, I don't know, 3 or 4% in the polls or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and then then confirm the lineup. Then they'll have their final, they'll have the, the last of all the uh, broadcasters, uh, Lux and Hipkins debates. That'll be just two days before the election on the 12th on uh, TV1, 7pm. Again, that's Jessica Much Mackay. TVNZ also doing two others, a young voters debate uh, on the 25th of September and the day after a uh, Māori issues debate um, hosted by the Deputy Political Editor at TVNZ, Mikey Sherman. And what about... um uh, prime time, most of those uh, reports uh, or election specials. Yeah, well, the 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 two the two Hipkins Luxon Luxon head the head ones will be, and that multi uh, party debate. So the the minor parties mostly. Um, but the, the the other two I mentioned there, the youth voters one and the Maori issues debate. They're not. They're just streaming those. Um, on TVNZ One, the, the One News website and their social channels, and mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a shame because 
Uh, I mean, I guess it's a lot if you're going to you know, use up a lot of prime time with five entire debates. But if, if a kind of TV1 audience, which as we know tends to be a, a little older um, and in some, some instances a bit more Pakeha than the, than the national demographic, if they were you know, watching in prime time, if that's their habit, and seeing, say, a youth debate where you know, the, the, the issues of concern to mm-hmm. Gen Z and millennials and so on, are, that's the idea. It's also going to be hosted by um, Re News and Anna Harcourt. She's the chief of that outlet. You know, this is TVNZ's youth dedicated mm-hmm. digital outlet. So, you know, some new faces on there. I think it'll be worth... You know, people getting to see those uh, the, the casual viewers on TVNZ as well, and the same goes for the um, the Māori Issues program. Particularly pertinent this week, of course, with that uh, the bill to uh, lower the age going through uh, yeah. Parliament. Yeah. Yes, indeed, I hadn't thought of that. Which um, you know, there's also a kind of campaign against um, running a newspaper advertising in the in the Post here in Wellington about that. So, you know, trying to mobilise. Um, Mobilised discontent about that. That's for local elections, of course, which is yes. slightly different. But yeah, um, sure. yeah TVNZ sure. also, I should mention, running that Vote Compass, that online tool where you can, uh, they've, they've done this, I think, the, at least the last election, possibly the one before, where you can go on and see how your views line up with what's on offer from uh, the political parties. That's a kind of combo of a Canadian outfit called uh, Vox Pops Labs who developed the format. Um, and uh, TVNZ are backing it, obviously, but also Auckland and Victoria universities. The Electoral Commission, as well, kind of backs that as a way of driving voter engagement, which is you know one of their one of their tasks, as well as you know overseeing the election and um, and doing the official results. But that uh, that survey in the past has been somewhat controversial, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, and also, but you know, mainly because of what what's asked and what isn't. People putting in their results, saying, "Oh my goodness, come on!" I answered these questions honestly, and you know, I, I do not consider myself a Green Party voter or whatever. But mm. um, there was also, I, I thought it was the same thing when I checked it out. I got it slightly wrong. There's a thing called Kiwi Meter back in 2016 um, that was run by the same uh, Canadian outfit and the same sort of method, but that was billed as not pegged to an election, though, but billed as the biggest survey of national identity ever taken undertaken in New Zealand um, and in one question respondents were asked to agree or disagree with the statement Māori should not receive any special treatment mm-hmm. uh, and then they wanted to know the strength of your agreement or disagree with that so that caused a lot of reaction a lot of politicians reacted very badly TVNZ quite embarrassed by that so don't expect to see that question mm-hmm. uh, in the vote compass uh, this year but it will be interesting to see quite what questions they choose for the vote compass in this campaign and also once it's up and running and does get you know six-figure responses whether tvnz decide to use that as you know to frame questions for politicians or use it as a kind of resource in in their reporting of of the campaign and the issues now what about other broadcasters what have they got planned as far as you know yeah a lot of that hasn't yet been confirmed so i don't have like news hubs plans just yet on you know the other main tv channel rnz uh, hasn't got any specific you know big debates or leader stuff uh, planned they are teaming up with the pacific media network to run a pacific issues debate uh, i don't think a date for that has quite been set there is also special content in the caucus uh, podcast so that's um rnz is lisa owen to Watkin guy and espiner and um, julian wilcox uh, chewing over the issues that comes out every thursday It'll be broadcast on the radio as well as available as a podcast and Hinarangi forbes um will be doing special election uh, editions of Mata, uh, that co-production podcast mm-hmm. of hers. That comes out every Tuesday. I think, I believe the next one is going to feature um, a, a long head-to-head with um, Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister and Labour Party leader. So that's um, 
that's all uh, good content. There will also be reporters on the road as the campaign develops and some more content to come. They're still finalising that. Sometimes parties themselves find it hard to commit to things. But what I was looking out for and I asked Duff today, will they be doing, they've done the last few elections, uh, an online debate in Christchurch hosted by the press, which often gets a bit lively because it's not televised and they cut loose a little bit yeah. and have a bit of audience raucousness as well. Um, and they couldn't confirm for me whether they were actually doing this, but say their full plans will be released um, very shortly. So maybe next time we speak um, or next uh, next midweek Media Watch next Wednesday, we'll know about that one. Māori TV are going to do, by the way, uh, seven one-hour debates with candidates in all seven Māori seats, and those might get a, a wider run as well. And mm-hmm. I noticed that Māori TV this week, their towel with Moana Weekly Current Affairs show had a special about the media coverage of election campaigns with nine Auckland-based journalists and media commentators. One of them was that guy you have on every other Wednesday on the Midweek oh. Media Watch, that... Um, you know, not, not Hamish Hayden Donnell. Hayden Donnell, that's the guy, yeah. He made the cut. He, he was in it, he did, yeah. What did he... What did he talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in fact, he talked about something he spoke about with you last Wednesday, and this thing was recorded the next day, so I think you warmed him up. Fresh in Um, his mind. (laughs) Yeah, but what he was speaking about was that uh, actually a lot of people brought it up. It kept re-emerging throughout these three groups of three journalists they talked to. Um, And that was the effect in the media focus uh, focus on polls. Mm. And as Hayden was saying, you know, they can be a bit self-fulfilling and create a tone and parties respond to them and so on. And the other issue that a lot of people seem to agree on um, or raise a lot was whether, you know, the intense focus on social media and news media was kind of a handbrake. If bold ideas were discussed, politicians got weary of them and somehow it kind of created a sort of conservatism. Matthew uh, Putin was one pundit who didn't accept that latter point, he said, look, politicians are seasoned, they have, you know, resources and bureaucrats and help and so on. You know, if they've got an idea to push, they shouldn't be restrained and, um, you know, just because an opinion poll or social media reaction might find. So he he pushed uh, pushed back against that. But if we've got time, I'd like to play it. It's about Mm. just under a minute's worth. So this is one of the trio that Matthew Hooten was in. They were asked by Moana Maniapoto, the host, are the media doing bad or well in this campaign? Oh, a terrible job. And I think that our media are doing a very poor job of holding the powerful to account and keeping us focused on what the real issues are. We are on petty nothings and we are a lesser democracy for it. It's a bit depressing, isn't it there, Rich? What what are you thinking? I think we're not served well enough and I don't want rat-a-tat-tat. I am so sick of the opinionators. I'm sick of somebody like Heather DuPlessis-Allen saying that the Prime Minister going to hospital with his daughter being unwell was doing that to get votes. I just don't oh, want that kind of thing. She didn't. Yeah, political, yeah, she did. Matthew? Well, I actually think that the two TV networks, with the exception of those ridiculous 7 o'clock programmes, are probably doing a better job than they have for a few elections. I'm actually seeing more discussion of policy, more detail of it, and less just isn't John Key or Jacinda Ardern called. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so uh, plenty more of that, including Hayden and others. Should just say the other voices there was Matthew Hooten, uh, Martin Bradbury from the Daily Blog, and the other voice there was Richard Palmatato, uh, who teaches journalism at the AUT in Auckland. And when he referred to Heather Duplessis on there, that was about the Prime Minister had said, you know, when his daughter was ill in hospital, he put out a message mm. on Facebook. She didn't say that. She read out texts from listeners saying, oh, is he just trying to get sympathy and doing this? And that got a very bad reaction. She read out the text, probably didn't need to, but said, we'll just leave that there. Mm. Uh, but yeah, she got a bit of a backlash from people who thought she was you know, really trying to make that point herself. But to be clear, she was reading out 
texts from listeners who had that rather cynical reaction. So can you squeeze in a couple of minutes? We've got a couple of minutes before 11 about the political hecklers disrupting the campaigning. Yeah, that's right. So um, this was uh, Chris Luxon trying to do a press conference uh, when he was being facing questions about ruling in or out Winston Peters. Uh, the Vision NZ, uh, or perhaps Freedom's uh, movement, part of the same uh, crowd now, Carl Mokoraka, leaped over the fence. A lot of people have heard that now. Um, and the media are going to have to work out what to do with this sort of guerrilla response um, because it's happened to uh, the Prime Minister in Otara as well. He was uh, drowned out by uh, members of the same, supporters of the same political group. This is News Hub's Amelia Wade uh, on News Hub at 6 on Monday saying, look, this hasn't come out of the blue. Police have been planning for it in a ministerial briefing. They said that uh, there had the potential to be threats to the general election and to some of the candidates, and that would require a significant response. Chris Hipkins said today that that could even look like cops on some of the candidates, which is a total shame that such a vocal yet tiny minority is able to disrupt the democracy that we've come to know. Amelia, tēnākoe. So what can they do, though? Because, I mean, you know, it's interesting to see how the candidate reacts. Yeah, basically. For now, it's a bit of a novelty. But if this keeps happening, yes. and I think Brian Tamaki's told the media in interviews, yeah, expect our candidates to pop up and do this sort of thing, then it is going to happen again. It's not a novelty. So mm-hmm. uh, I think I felt bad for Christopher Lux, and I thought he handled it pretty well, even telling mm-hmm. the guy, you're no Slim Shady. He had a couple of com- comebacks telling him he wasn't modelling his values very well. I thought that was uh, that was that was well done. But the media have got to work it out. You know, they, they reported this. I watched that press conference. They reported it almost as breaking news. I think that in incentivises the disruption, so possibly the media need to take a different approach. Colin Peacock, thank you so much.